Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. So welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm Cal Rastiala, and I have uh, today a really special guest, uh, Anu Bradford, who is the Henry L. Moses Professor of Law and International Organization at Columbia. And for our purposes, I should say at Columbia Law School, and for our purposes, she is here to talk about her new book called The Brussels Effect, which is a relatively deep dive and a really interesting read into the regulatory power of the European Union and how the European Union has become, in many ways, the most significant uh, regulator in the world. And so uh, I'm really pleased to have Anu here. We've known each other a while, and it's great to have you on the podcast, Anu. Thanks so much, Paul. Good to be here. Sure, sure. So I thought what I could do is is first just ask you about the Brussels effect and really just begin with a definition, which is, you know, what does that mean? And can you give us a couple of salient examples? Yeah, absolutely, Carl. So the Brussels effect refers to the European Union's ability to regulate the global marketplace and to do so unilaterally. So the European Union is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world. And there are very few global companies that can afford not to trade in Europe. So in order to engage with the European market, they follow the European regulations. There's nothing surprising with that. But what is more interesting is that these companies often choose to apply the European regulations across their global production and operations. And they do so in order to avoid the cost of complying with multiple regulatory regimes. So by choosing to follow a uniform standard, and if that uniform standard is the most stringent standard in the world, which the EU standards often are, they can access all the markets around the world. So all the EU needs to do is to regulate the single market. And it is the global companies that then globalize those European rules. Great, fantastic. So we're going to drill down a little bit on how this works in practice and sort of what areas we tend to see the Brussels effect uh, and what areas we don't and so forth in in a few minutes. But just... Um, Just to continue kind of setting the stage. So, you know, I'm here in California. California has long been a pace setter within the United States in terms of regulation, let's say on air quality. And uh, in fact, you talk in the book about the notion of the California effect being a kind of inspiration for for your thinking. And then the contrasting uh, kind of state or effect in, in, in the American context is the Delaware effect, which is usually viewed as more of a race to the bottom rather than a kind of race to the top. And so uh, I'm curious how you see, I guess, two questions, how you see the Brussels effect differing from the way the California effect has been understood in American regulatory uh, understandings. And then um, the second question is, what what is the distinction with the Delaware effect or, or how do we distinguish between races to the top and races to the bottom in a kind of neutral way? Is there a way to actually do that or is this more of an eye of the beholder? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right that the Brussels effect uh, builds on the California effect, which documented this phenomenon in the U.S. context. So you're right, California was a, a leader and has been uh, in environmental regulation 
and it had managed to then elevate the regulatory standards uh, across the United States. You are a car manufacturer in Detroit, you want to sell cars in California, you need to follow those emission standards, but it would be too costly for you then to set up separate production lines and produce different type of types of cars for the rest of the United States, even if those other states had not elevated their standards uh, as high as the California standards were. So David Fogel from Berkeley um, uh, gave name, the California effect, to this phenomenon whereby we start seeing a race to the top. So these companies that follow the California rules, then start advocating the same kind of rules um, in the rest of the United States because they are already complying with this kind of rules. And we see then the other state adjust their rules upwards to meet the California standards. And it is the opposite what happens with the Delaware effect where people often describe we see a race to the bottom, that you have Delaware with very generous pro-shareholder corporate rules. And then uh, we have other states who want to also persuade companies to uh, register um, in their states. And then they have the incentives to uh, try to compete with Delaware to have a very generous uh, corporate uh, rules. So this is the foundation of the, uh, the debates on the regulatory races, whether we see a race to the top or whether we see the race to the bottom. What makes the Brussels effect different. So first of all, it is closer to the California effect. It builds on that being often described as a race to the top or race to the regulatory stringency, but it describes what happens globally. So globally, the regulations come from the European Union uh, today. It used to be much more they came from the United States, but since 1990s, they have come from the EU. Um, the Brussels effect goes a little bit further than the theory of the California effect by really giving a more nuanced theory of when this kind of race takes place. And it also focuses less on whether other states follow what the EU does. It really follows on the corporations around the world adjusting their behavior globally, even though they own states, they own governments around the world would not follow the suit and would not implement the EU type of rules. So what we may see is that we only see often the EU have the stringent regulatory standard in place. Other countries like the United States not adjusting its standards, but US companies like Google and Facebook following the EU standards of privacy also in the United States. Great, great. So privacy is a wonderful example and, and data issues. I think most listeners are probably familiar with the fact that now any website you go to as a result of uh, the GDPR regulation, uh, they have to click something about cookies and so forth. And that's really the result of, of, uh, of the EU regulation. And I think a kind of paradigmatic example of what you're talking about. Is that right? Yeah, so I think that is one of the most profound and most topical examples of the Brussels effect. When you look at companies like Facebook and Google and Microsoft adopt the EU rules globally, and even then advocating, Mark Zuckerberg was advocating a federal uh, legislation in the US that would be modeled according to the GDPR, something that Tim Cook from Apple was suggesting as well. So these US companies have also become advocates of the EU privacy rules. But Carl, right. I think privacy is a great example, but it's not the only one. We have other examples from digital economy. One um, 
Topical example is hate speech online, where companies like Twitter and YouTube have adopted the EU's definition of hate speech, not the one that would come from the First Amendment of the US Constitution when these companies decide what kind of speech they take down from their platforms. But then we see examples from environmental regulation. We see examples from consumer health and safety, including chemical regulation or food safety. So it's really something that uh, cuts across many different industries, affecting many different companies in numerous markets around the world. Yes, yes. So I agree. Those are all, um, first of all, those are all things that you obviously cover in the book. And I think all really fantastic examples. And I want to, a little later, we'll turn to the issue of consumer facing, which seems to be an important through line. And I want to kind of understand a little more how, how you see that playing out. But just to stick for a moment uh, to, let's say, to data and internet issues, because I think those are uh, personally, to me, apparently interesting, but also great examples of what you're talking about and something everyone has kind of experienced in a, in a very concrete way. So, so I guess conceptually, one question I have is, is, is so take hate speech, which you brought up. Um, is the Brussels effect about the most stringent regulation uh, sort of being spread through this market dynamic? And how do we define stringency? Or is it about the most, I don't know, positive in some normative sense? Or um, what is it exactly that makes uh, the hate speech standard that's used that you just alluded to an example of the Brussels effect? So break that down a little more. Yeah, so generally it is about regulatory stringency or it is about the regulation that is ambitious in the sense that when a company complies with that particular regulation, it also is in compliance with the regulations in the rest of the world. So if the EU tells that you cannot have this particular harmful chemical in your products, there are very few instances where another jurisdiction would demand that you need to, for instance, put asbestos into the product. So by leaving out the chemicals that are not prohibited in the EU, the products are produced in the way uh, that contain the, the chemical uh, uh, composition that make them fit for the EU, but also fit for the rest of the world. So generally it is about stringency and maybe how to illustrate the difference. So there could be instances where the, the regulations are mutually incompatible. And that's when the Brussels effect doesn't work. So if you think about a classic trade dispute between the US and the EU, the mm -hmm. EU does not accept that you would treat chicken with chlorine. And if the US wants you to treat chicken with chlorine in order to make it fit for the market, then it's hard to ask what, what is the most stringent regulation. There's not one regulatory standard that encompasses the other regulatory standards. But that's more typically, that's an aberration. So, so normally it is the EU's stringent standard that is more ambitious um, than the standards available uh, uh, that required by the other governments. But for instance, you, you ask about the hate speech. The EU is not the most stringent regulator of speech. We have authoritarian governments, uh, including China, Russia, Iran, which have much more stringent uh, speech rules online, right, but the right. EU is the most stringent yet still acceptable to the companies to the extent that the companies are willing to abide by those rules. So if we if we were to see companies like Facebook and Twitter instead adhere to a 
Chinese standard, much more constraining, let's, let's just stipulate. Um, I know we'll talk a little later about China as well, but just for the moment, uh, that would be an example of a Brussels type effect, except coming from Beijing, if they, if, if they in fact adhere, adhere to that. But your point is right now, they're not doing that. They're choosing to follow what's coming out of Europe, not what's coming out of the US or coming out of China. Exactly. Okay, fantastic. So, um, so, so one thing I realized, just to back up for a second, I didn't say where your book was published. So let me say it's on Oxford and it came out this year. Is that right? Just, just a few months ago? Yeah. Okay, perfect. It is challenging time to come up with a book, but I got it out right before the pandemic and uh, then the conversation turned. Uh, but yeah, so the book came out earlier this year. Yeah, great. So in terms of the examples that you were just giving, one thing that obviously comes to mind for, I think, a lot of lawyers is, is one that, in a sense, in the example you just gave about chicken, uh, with different kind of contrasting regulatory requirements, there's a conflict of laws question that arises. And um, that's sort of one dimension that may or may not be present. And it sounds like oftentimes, if I understood you correctly, when, when there's no conflict and there's simply a more ambitious standard that's then chosen, that's when the Brussels effect is really in effect. Is that right? That's right, Carl, yes. Okay. And when there isn't, when there is a conflict, then I guess... I want to know what happens and how not only what happens empirically when there is such a conflict, but what does that mean for your argument and for the power of whether it's the EU or the United States to regulate? Uh, how do we understand that kind of more theoretically? Yeah, so I think in most instances, the companies that love uniform standards, they love the scale economies. They love to avoid the complications of producing different variants of the products for different markets in order to meet inconsistent regulatory standards. So, and in many instances, they can do that by adhering to the EU standards. So the EU standard uh, does give them the license to operate uh, around the world. But in cases like the, the example on the chlorine chicken or the other one could be that the EU's animal welfare regulations um, prevent the companies from testing cosmetics on animals. But up until mm -hmm. recently, uh, at least China has required animal testing to prove that cosmetics are safe. So what does the company do? The company has the option of producing two different variants of the product, two different factories or two different production lines within the factory in order to serve the Chinese market and to serve the European market and typically the rest of the world using the European production line. If this other market is big enough like China, you might see the companies conclude that it is worth a while to retain access to all the markets in the world and produce two different variations of the same product. But often, and to the extent that they can avoid it, they avoid it and they can either choose the market where they offer their products, um, or then that's the only way to uh, avoid um, the cost of compliance. So they may withdraw from some market because sometimes mm -hmm. it's also a very risky call. So if you imagine, for instance, the GMO regulation, the EU is very stringent when it comes to GMO food. And if you genetically are- Genetically modified. Exactly, genetically modified uh, food. And if you are a farmer in the United States and you would want to um, export to Europe and also produce domestically, and you want to have two different fields that you separate, that you have GMOs used in one field, but no GMOs on the other, 
you run the risk that there is cross-pollination and somehow the GMOs get commingled with the non-GMO crop. And then your production is unfit for marketing Europe. So in many instances, the farmers have chosen to um, basically avoid GMOs altogether in order just not to even have the risk that their production might then be um, uh, unsuitable for some of the export markets. So the pressures towards uniformity are very strong. And I think it's more of an exception when you decide then to uh, produce different products for different markets. But of course, in some areas, if you can do it at a reasonable cost, then you can do it. So you can cater to more refined and different consumer preferences in instances where the scale economies are not that overwhelming or where it is feasible for you to separate your production. I use the term divisibility of production. So when your production is divisible, then Brussels effect doesn't take place. Then the companies are producing different products for different markets. Right. And you actually lay out a couple of other uh, factors or I guess, uh, uh, yeah, I guess there are factors that either promote or or don't, the Brussels effect. So, so divisibility is one, and maybe you could just quickly lay out the others. Yeah, so um, for the Brussels effect to take place, and it's not a theory about the EU, it's basically a theory of when a single jurisdiction can uh, regulate the global marketplace alone. So if these conditions are present with respect to the US, we should see the Washington effect. If China meets these conditions, then we should see the Beijing effect. So what you need to have is a large consumer market. If you have Costa Rica that is willing to be very ambitious environmental regulator and those standards are too much for corporations to handle, they just decide not to do business in Costa Rica. But you cannot avoid trading in large markets. So why don't we see the Washington effect or the Beijing effect? They are also large markets. Well, large market is not enough. You also need to have the regulatory capacity. So the legal institutions that help you unleash the power of the market and convert that into tangible regulatory influence. China, for instance, doesn't quite have the institutional framework, the technocratic expertise and the ability to enforce its regulations. Washington doesn't have that problem. There's plenty of regulatory capacity in Washington. But what is missing there is the third component, the political willingness to deploy that capacity. So that capacity largely sits idle in the DC. There is no federal privacy regulation that would compete with the general data protection regulation. So the market size, the regulatory capacity, the political will to promulgate stringent regulations. And then the two remaining uh, conditions one is that non-divisibility. So the idea that it is in the interest of the producer to forgo the benefits of taking advantage of lower standards in other markets and instead of applying a uniform standard. And the, large, uh, the last uh, condition is what I call uh, inelasticity or elasticity. So the idea that the single jurisdiction can successfully uh, regulate globally only when it regulates inelastic targets, like the EU regulates consumers, not capital. Capital can move if the regulatory environment is too stringent. But consumers, all these, um, the data subjects that are regulated by the GDPR, 
the company cannot avoid the EU regulation by, for instance, processing the data outside of the EU. There is, as long as the EU regulates the environment and the consumers, those are inelastic targets that don't move. So you basically need to have all those five elements for there to be the Brussels effect. The market size, regulatory capacity, political will to deploy regulations, inelastic targets, and non-divisible production. Fantastic. So, so if, uh, if the Washington effect were to kick in a little more strongly, it sounds like maybe that might vary based on who's in the White House, for example, or uh, you know, particular parties controlling Congress and being willing to deploy the regulatory capacity the U.S. has. So if we saw that occur, let's say, in a couple of years, and we also saw China become more aggressive in building up its capacity and deploying that capacity, we might start to see multiple uh, Brussels-like effects. They're all, you said, conceptually the same. It's just you're talking about the EU happens to empirically be the one that matters right now the most. And you are, you know, you have a a particular interest in that, but there's nothing particular about Europe to the story. Is that right? That's right, Carl. And I think um, until 1990s, the regulations came from the United States. The U.S. was willing to be the leader on, for instance, environmental regulations. But since then, there's been a political commitment to deregulation. And, and really, even when we've had Democratic uh, presidents um, in the White House, the Congress, the, the, these issues have become politically very divisive. And it has been very difficult to harness the consensus behind the kind of regulations. So partially it's been um, the, the political deadlock surrounding many of these regulations, but also called the procedural commitment to cost-benefit analysis, to scientific, very high levels of scientific proof that are required before the government is willing to intervene. And something that I think the Europeans and Americans are um, as somewhat different in how they think about their faith in the market's ability to self-correct or in the government's ability to intervene in productive ways. And the Europeans have been much more comfortable with the idea that the governments may get it right and governments can improve the market outcomes by intervening with antitrust laws, with privacy laws, with environmental, with food safety regulations and so forth. But in principle, yes, if we see a move, we see a shift in the political landscape, we, you see calls for more stringent antitrust regulation, for instance, um, that is a, a rather new conversation here, we might see that the United States would step back in the game and then it would be a competing regulator with Brussels. Right, right. So if we were to see that, let, let's talk about that a little bit, because one of the other factors you mentioned that's very significant is market size. So you give the example of Costa Rica, of course, tiny, tiny jurisdiction. EU is very large. But as you point out in the book, the EU's relative economic size, market size, is in fact diminishing fairly rapidly, uh, which is also true of the United States. But the United States remains per capita, quite a bit richer. Um, China's obviously growing, has been growing very fast. Other countries are as well. And so if we were to extrapolate 10 years in the future or 20 years, certainly, um, we would see a very different landscape in terms of market size. And uh, I know you explore this, but let's just talk a little bit about what, first of all, what do you see happening in the future uh, as that occurs? And then how does that relate to your 
your arguments? Does it really matter? Or does it just mean that the Brussels effect is muted over time as, let's say, the Beijing effect grows over time? Yeah, so Carl, I think it is absolutely inevitable that Europe's relative size of the global marketplace will go down. And with that, there is a possibility that we also see the Brussels effect being compromised. The, the fewer um, the, the, the fewer are the, in, the, the instances where the companies perceive the European Union to be an unavoidable, inevitable trading destination. The more they have opportunities to trade elsewhere, the less dependent they are on following the Brussels regulations. But the argument I make in the book is not that the EU's market size would not go down. I rather make the argument that the EU's regulatory power will outlive its power measured by GDP alone. And the reason is the following. So first of all, the GDP is a better predictor, uh, the, the, the GDP per capita is a better predictor of the jurisdiction's willingness to regulate than the GDP alone. And it is going to be a long while before the Chinese consumers are wealthy enough, before the GDP per capita in China is at the level that there will be a genuine demand for very ambitious regulations. And by the time the Chinese consumers will get there, I'm afraid that the overall GDP growth of China has slowed down to the effect that the government might be hesitant to, uh, to adopt any regulations that might further dampen that growth. So in that sense, I think there will be a delayed Beijing effect if that effect was to come to existence. And uh, let me press you on that for a second, just, oh. just, just to pause on that example. Um, so you're very much focused on consumer-driven and consumer-protective regulation, but let's just take again online speech. The Chinese government has a had this, the Communist Party has a strong interest in controlling what's said that has nothing to do with consumer interests or, for that matter, really GDP per capita. It's a very much a political decision. Uh, and they have pretty stringent regulation about technology and the use of technology, social media and other forms because of that. So why isn't that uh, an example of the dynamic that we're talking about. Why does it matter that it has to come from Chinese consumers in some future state in which they're much wealthier? Well, when we talk about the consumer-driven regulation in the EU, that is something that where the companies are sensitive to the needs of the consumer when they are designing the products globally, and where the preferences of the European consumer allow them to produce products that are still marketable elsewhere. The Chinese preferences when it comes to online speech, it is the kind of online speech that is not marketable elsewhere. But you're right that that's not a consumer-driven uh, a, a regulation in the sense that China may still go ahead and continue to keep its uh, stringent uh, regulations. But it may just lead to the kind of splinternet the, the, um, uh, the differences in regulatory environments where we see a different set of companies offer services in China and we see different technology companies cater uh, to different markets. So in that sense, I think that the Chinese speech is not going to be globalized, the same that Brussels effect is going to be globalized. Um, when I talk about the examples of the Chinese consumers not being wealthy enough 
um, the, the issues that I in, had in mind, it affects their willingness to, for instance, demand very stringent uh, product safety regulations, environmental regulations, um, food safety regulations. And to some extent, they already have been asking for more stringent regulations. Um, yes, but definitely. we are we are far still from uh, the kind of regulation that we are seeing in, in the EU. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So just to close, we have a little bit of time left. I want to ask, um, I guess, one one sort of very much related to what we're talking about is the issue of consumer versus, let's say, business side uh, regulation. So whether it's in high technology where, for example, let's say 5G rollout, where the U.S. is pressuring many countries to adopt uh, or not adopt technology from Chinese companies that directly relates to to some standardization choices and regulatory choices um, or taxation or other things. Just to clarify, the dynamic that you describe is really about consumer-facing regulations, not kind of business-facing, but it might have implications for business-facing or is that a totally different world as far as, as, far as your argument is concerned? Well, we talk about consumer products, but we, we are... It's a regulating business when business is offering products to the consumer marketplace. And, um, but if you think about the number of uh, businesses that use data, for instance, as part of their business model, all of that is captured by the European regulation. I think where we don't see the Brussels effect is that when we talk about, for instance, like I mentioned, mobile elastic uh, targets like capital. So financial regulation is a much harder one or taxation for Brussels to take a global uh, lead on. So in that sense, yes, it is much more of a consumer-driven regulatory model, which is why if you think about some of the American regulations where the U.S. has been more ambition, ambitious was that after financial crisis, there was a tightening of financial regulation, but that follows a different dynamic. And it's not to say that the EU would not care when it comes to um, digital tax, when it comes to, when, it, when we talk about labor uh, regulations or human rights regulations that are not about consumer markets. It is just that in those areas, the EU needs to rely on diplomacy, political channels of trying to export its uh, views uh, around the world because the markets, the business incentives of companies don't do the job for the EU. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So just a couple of last questions, not uh, necessarily related questions, but we talked a few minutes back about briefly about the idea of conflicts of law and how that might play out. And I guess one other dimension to this that that comes to mind in terms of thinking about the legal implications uh, is, of course, uh, extraterritoriality and the ways in which we might see this uh, dynamic play out through uh, extraterritorial claims of jurisdiction. But it seems like the way you're describing it and from, from having read your book, that in fact, a lot of this is really not extraterritorial at all. It may have an extraterritorial effect in the sense that businesses outside the territorial jurisdiction choose to follow the regulation. Um, but there isn't an assertion of jurisdiction in the traditional sense. Is that is that how you see it? That's right, Paul. And that's why the biggest, when the biggest criticism of the Brussels effect has been, or at least the criticism made on political grounds, is that the EU is a regulatory imperialist. It is compromising the political autonomy of citizens around the world and making regulators in other jurisdictions obsolete and enable to cater to the democratic preferences of their citizens. 
But at the same time, if you think about what is the EU's response to this, the EU says we are exercising our sovereign right to regulate our own market. And if a global company then decides to apply the EU rules globally and, and serve uh, markets in India and Brazil and the United States and China with those same products, that is not us imposing our regulations. That is not us engaging in extraterritorial enforcement of our laws. So what we rather see is the company's voluntary change in their global business behavior, where we see the rules come from Brussels, but the rules that are intended for regulating the European market and then voluntarily taken on by the corporations for around the world. And sometimes we see that foreign governments around the world also then emulate these regulations around the world. So if you think about the, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations we've talked about, there are over 100 countries now around the world, the governments that have adopted a GDPR-style regulation domestically as well. That's not to say that the EU is engaged in extraterritorial enforcement or extraterritorial regulation. No, no, it's more like it's exporting its regulatory rules and maybe approach to other places who are happily adopting it, but doing so voluntarily. Yeah, and some of them may be reluctantly, but in the end, it is in the interest of these companies. They may not love the Brussels rule as the best rule in the world, but they still conclude that it is in their business interest. They are better off with one global rule than um, a, a bunch of different rules coming from different jurisdictions. And often then they lobby their own governments to adopt those same rules as well so they can level the playing field domestically vis-a-vis -vis the competitors that would not be exporting to Europe and that would not be subject to those stringent regulations. But right, that right. dynamic that exports those rules that is already further removed from Brussels itself, that is still focused on regulating the single market. One thing I think we also did mention, which is important, and I think you agree with this, is that large companies, very large companies, which really is what we're focused on in this discussion, often are uh, fans of stringent regulation if it's expensive to, to implement because it gives them a competitive advantage. They're able to do it, smaller companies are not. And so paradoxically, they sometimes welcome it. Yeah. And this is something, Carl, that I, I do have a concern to some extent of the distributional impact of the EU regulation, because the EU regulators' discomfort with the powerful companies dominating the market is well known. And that explains partially all the um, antitrust cases against Google, for instance, for allegedly abusing that dominant position. But there is a, a criticism that I think is valid that, for instance, the GDPR is the type of regulation that is particularly costly for the small companies that cannot afford to comply with those stringent regulatory environments. Um, it is not hard for Google. It is not hard for Facebook. It is not hard for Apple to follow uh, the, the European rules in that respect. And that is something I think when the EU starts reevaluating its approach, it needs to take a hard look of the differential impact of its regulations on small versus large companies. Agreed, agreed. Well, this has been a terrific discussion, Anna, and I'm really glad uh, we were able to talk about uh, your book. Again, it's called The Brussels Effect on Oxford University Press. And I really want to thank you for, for coming on the podcast and, 
And I want to thank the listeners uh, for for listening in. And and please uh, subscribe to us uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Andrew, thanks again so much for for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure, Carl.